There was once a, a lumberjack company up in Quebec, up in uh, you know French Canada, and they put out an ad for a new lumberjack. And this uh, little yiddle shows up, and he says, uh, "I'm here to apply for the new lumberjack position." They take a look at him. They don't really think he looks like these other, you know, uh, French Canadian lumberjacks. So they say, "Do you have any experience?" He says, "Yeah, I have experience." They say, "Like where? Where did you work before?" He says, "Well, the Sahara forest." They said, "You mean the Sahara Desert?" He says, "Oh yeah." Now, <laughs> chop down all the trees. Okay. It's interesting that when we learn that a human being is compared to a tree, it's in the context of a prohibition against chopping down trees. Ki Odem Eitzasada is a, is a posuk, it's a verse in Parsha Shoftim. It's speaking about the laws, the rules of engagement and battle and war. And it mentions that whereas you are obviously going to have to fight other uh, people, combatants from the enemy's side, you shouldn't needlessly destroy property. Ki you read it rhetorically as, uh, as, our, as our sages interpret, meaning, you know, you have to kill the enemy, fine, but why, why are you killing innocent trees? And that is actually the root of the halachic prohibition of baltashchis, against waste, wasting something. Now, one of the conditions is that we're talking about fruit-bearing trees. One must not uproot or damage a fruit-bearing tree. And in the Gemara, our sages interpret this also homiletically. The halachic meaning is the simple meaning not to destroy a fruit tree, or for that matter, anything, not to waste anything that is um, useful. But there's a homiletic, there's alpidrush, there's a moral teaching uh, based on this as well. And that is, our sages tell us about a Torah teacher, about a Talmud Chacham, that there are two kinds of teachers. There is one that is a fruit-bearing tree, and you should not uproot him. You should receive from him. You should learn from this teacher. And then there is a Talmud Chacham, there is a teacher who is not a fruit-bearing tree, he has no fruits, you should not learn from him. You should uproot him. Get him out of your life. He shouldn't be an influence in your life. This is what the, the Gemara tells us. Now, what's it talking about? What are the fruits or the lack thereof of a teacher? You would think those are the teachings, but they can't be the teachings because obviously it's saying there are teachers who don't have fruits, so you shouldn't listen to their teachings. So they have teachings, but they don't have fruits. So then what are the fruits if not the teachings? So to understand this, first we have to understand that everything that is in the universe at large exists in microcosm within each of us. Each one of us is an oilum cotton, is a, is a small world. So in the, in the universe we have daimim tzameach chai. We have categories, the inanimate or inert, the vegetative, and the animated, or the animal living things. And those correspond within each of us to action, emotion, and intellect. How so? When you have something that's inert, like matter, you know, a, a, a stone, what, what does it possess? It really just takes up space. I mean, what, what, 
describes it, what are its properties, it, it takes up physical space. And that's the same thing with action in a person. What's an action? An action is something that happens here in this physical world. It's an action. Now, what is a plant or a or vegetable life? It takes up space, plus another thing, it grows. Now it grows. That corresponds to emotion. Emotion grows. What does that mean, emotion grows? Action doesn't grow. Action is binary. Either you did it or you didn't. Right? You know, like the guy who was on El Al and it was time for dinner. The stewardess said, would you care for dinner? He says, what are the options? She said, two options. You eat or you don't. So that an action is binary. Either you put on filling or you didn't. That's it. Two options. Emotions grow. Like a plant grows, emotions grow. Meaning it could be love or it could be awe, but the love can grow, it can become more in intense, or the awe could grow, it can become more intense. Um, and, and in fact, that's one of the things we do in Chassidus is we meditate and we, we enhance or magnify our emotions, our Avas Hashem, our Yiras Hashem, we try to grow them over time. Now, just like the emotions have something that action doesn't have, which corresponds to the fact that plant life has something that the inanimate doesn't have. There's another level, which is the animal, which corresponds within us to the intellect, which has another layer or level that the previous two don't have. So action, which corresponds to the inanimate, it takes up space. It's a physical thing. Then you have emotion, which corresponds to plant life, which grows. You can have more intense love, more intense awe. What's the additional property or aspect that intellect, which corresponds to an animal, possesses? What can an animal do that a plant can't? can move around. So a plant can grow, but it only grows in one spot. It's rooted to its spot. Intellect can get up and move. What does that mean, intellect can get up and move? Emotions are very rooted. They stay where they are. They can become more intense or less intense, right? Like a plant grows, but they do not move from their spot. So that's like, you know, I know how I feel. Don't confuse me with the facts. Intellect is the exact, exact opposite. Intellect moves around. It's, 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 it, it, it hops around. It, 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 it flits around. It's very mobile. It's very, very uh, agile. That's why like, a good lawyer, for instance, could argue either side of a case. In fact, not only they could, but if they're really good, they should be able to understand thoroughly what all the arguments and all the proofs and all the logic from the other side would be. Or like when we learn Gemara, when we learn two sides of an issue. We don't root for one side. <laughs> it's not like today's political discourse where everything's reduced to basically rooting for a sports team, right? Today, politics, you know, no one's informed about issues. It's sports teams. So you have an R by your name or a D by your name. You know, it's like rooting for a sports team, and that's it. And you root for the, the policies that, that are associated with the team that, that you're rooting for, not that people actually understand the logic from the other side, right? Like a, in a good debate, a good political debate, not only could you convincingly convey your own argument, but if you're really prepared for a debate, you could convincingly convey the argument of the opposition. And that's the nature of intellect moves around. It's very facile with just moving from, that's the, that's the gift of objectivity also. You're not stuck in one place. You can see things from different perspectives. You can move around. Okay, 
Now, what makes a human uniquely human is the intellect, that objective intellect, that, that intellect that's able to see things from other perspectives, right? An animal also has intellect, but its intellect only serves its emotions, its instinctive emotions. So whatever it is that it already cares about, so it uses its intellect to figure out how to get those things, right? But real human intellect is the ability to be rational, to be detached somewhat, to be objective, and to see things from another perspective that's not your own, okay? Um, abstract thinking, cognitive thinking, um, thinking about things that aren't in the here and now, you know, being able to project into the future, being able to imagine something from somebody else's point of view. All of that is intellect. And that's like an animal that moves around, okay? So here's the question. If I know that action corresponds to the inanimate, and emotion corresponds to the vegetative, and intellect corresponds to the animal, and when I say the word odom, I'm talking about a human, what a human uniquely possesses, which is intellect, I would want to compare, seemingly, I would want to compare the intellect not to a tree, which is a form of plant life, but the metaphor should have been some type of an, an animal, some animal that moves around, really, you know, maybe a kalkanesha, which is a muscle that's used for other things, you know, a, an eagle that's able to bounce around and move around very, very lightly, very easily. Why is it comparing a human, an odom, and in fact, I'll add to the question. We know that there are different names for a human being in the holy tongue. Odom, ish, gever, enish. Happens to be that odom is the name that specifically talks about intellect. Ish is the name that corresponds to emotions. So not only are you saying a human is like a tree, which is plant life, which is, like we said, Kabbalistic, represents the, the level of emotion, but specifically using the name Adam, which underscores the intellect of a human being. So why, when we're talking about a human being, and specifically the intellect of the human being, are we using a metaphor, which is plant life, which corresponds to the emotional aspect of the human and not the intellectual. This is the, this is the question that Chassidus asks. The answer is, there was once a guy in a hot air balloon and he got lost. He didn't have a compass, he didn't have a map, he didn't have any navigation tools, and he didn't know where he was, which is very dangerous, obviously. You don't know where you are. So uh, he was close to the ground, maybe about 30 feet off the ground, and he saw a guy in a field. So he screamed down below. He said, hey, look up here, look up here. The guy looks up, he sees the hot air balloon. The guy, the guy in the hot air balloon says, please help me, I'm lost. Do you know where I am? So the guy on the ground says, yeah, you're in a hot air balloon. Shakoyah, right? He says, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, where am I Like in, 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 in association with the earth? He says, about 30 feet off the ground. Shekoyach <laughs> again, right? It's not, he says, that's not, I, I mean my location, my location. He says, um, you're about 38 degrees north, 12 degrees east. The guy in the hot air balloon says, can I ask you a question down there? He says, yeah. He says, are you a rabbi? The guy says, well, yeah, I am a rabbi. How do you know I'm a rabbi? He says, because from the moment that I met you, Everything you've told me has been 100% accurate and totally irrelevant to my situation. <laughs> there, can be a, there can be someone who's an expert, and they know the truth. And it's all true. Everything they're saying is true, and it's accurate. 
but it's irrelevant to your situation. I'll tell you a story that I heard from uh, Telushkin, who this is not in his book about the Rebbe. This is this was a bonus story. He told me a story that he heard from Herbert Weiner, who wrote Nine and a Half Mystics. Nine and a Half Mystics, by the way, has a wonderful chapter about the Rebbe. Herbert Weiner was a reform rabbi who later on became from, And he learned at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, I think in the 1950s. So when he was there, there was a class given in Kabbalistic studies, Kabbalah class. And who gave it was the great professor of Kabbalistic studies at Hebrew University, Gershon Shalom. Now, if you don't know secular books about Kabbalah, um, so you don't recognize this name, but anyone who's familiar with the academic study of Kabbalah, meaning the secular study, of Kabbalah knows the name, name Gershon Shalom. He was the, the main um, translator and, and, and elucidator of Zohar and all the different Kabbalistic teachings and was, was, was a genius and an expert in all of them and uh, wasn't particularly religious. He didn't really believe in the holiness of the subject that he was an expert in. Um, he didn't say this, but actually he was once introduced at, a, at an academic conference uh, where somebody said that foolishness is foolishness, but the study of foolishness is academic. Okay, so he, he didn't say it, but I'm saying and he, he got up and he spoke after being introduced in such a way, meaning he didn't regard it as something holy. He just maybe felt it had historical importance to the Jewish people, and he, be, he became the expert in, in Kabbalah. At any rate, the story Herbert Weiner tells that he was one day sitting in class, and this guy came in making trouble, a Lubavitcher. Of course, Lubavitcher came in to make trouble. Who was he actually? His name was Chain, uh, Avram Yehuda Chain, and he was actually the son of the Radatz. If you ever heard of the Radatz, uh, the uh, uh, Herschel Chernogover. So he was David uh, He made Aliyah in the last couple of years of his, years of his life. He had a son Avram Yehuda Chain. So anyways, this Avram Yehuda, he comes into Gershon Shalom's Kabbalistic Studies class at uh, Hebrew University, and he starts heckling him. And he gets up there and he says, "I have a question for you, Professor. Herr Professor, what is the difference between a business owner and an accountant. What does this have to do with anything? He says, I'll tell you. He says, there's an accountant. He works for a business and he spends his days immersed in numbers. And every one of those numbers represents a dollar and a penny. And he knows exactly to the cent how much money came in today, how much money went out today, to the penny, he knows. But at the end of the day, he closes his accounting books and he goes home and he doesn't have any of that money. It's not his. He says the business owner, he doesn't check the books every day. He doesn't know to, a, to the penny. Maybe he checks once a month. He knows approximately if, there, if there's a loss, if there's a profit. 
So he doesn't know, he's not like the accountant. He does not know the particulars, the nitty-gritty. But you want to know the difference? It's his money. It's all his money. He says, the professor of Kabbalistic studies is like an accountant. He knows every letter of the Zohar. He knows where to find everything. But he closes the book. He goes home. It's not his. He doesn't bring the treasure with him. The Chassid, the Chassid might not know where everything in Zohar is. What do you mean? He knows Kigavna, right? Because it's in the Siddur. Or if it was a Dibra Maskal of a Maimer. You know, if it's taught in the Hasidic discourse. He does. He's not, a, he's not an expert in every, in every line of Zohar. Maybe he knows Bereish Hormenusa de Malka, Golif Galifa Betihiri Law. Because that's the first opening line. But that's about it. That's, that's as far as his knowledge goes. Doesn't matter. It's his treasure because he made it his life. He takes it seriously. He lives according to those teachings. So this is what it means when our sages say that if there's a teacher who doesn't have fruits, it's like a non-fruit-bearing tree, uproot him. Get rid of him. It means there could be somebody who has plenty of teachings because he's an expert. But he's not a tree. He's not a fruit-bearing tree. Remember we said that plant life, the vegetative, corresponds to what aspect of humanity? The emotional. So even when you're dealing with someone whose whole expertise is intellectual, he's an, he's a, he's an intellectual, he's a scholar, he's a teacher, right? But what are you looking for? You're looking for the person, not the smartest person. You're looking for the one who connects on an, on an emotional level, the person who actually owns what he's teaching and integrates it into his life and that's someone who's like a fruit-bearing tree then you can learn from him then you can learn from him so that's one teaching we we learn from the trees another thing uh, if you look outside now just a totally different uh, concept related to Hamisha Asabishvat and Rosh Hashanah if you look outside right now and you look at the trees, especially here in New York, you don't really see much going on, right? It's uh, not very interesting to look at the trees right now. <laughs> so why is Chamisha Asabeshvat the uh, Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year for the trees? So it, we're, we're told, and what does it mean it's a new year? for the, Halachically has significance. It, it, this marks the cutoff point halachically regarding all the agricultural laws that have to do with trees, you know, like how many years, according to Orla, you know, first three fruit, fruit bearing, uh, th first three years of fruit bearing, or uh, when it comes to Meiser, you know, which, which season is it considered, last year or this year? So that, how long it has significance? But what's going, is it some arbitrary date? I mean, if you look, look at the trees now, nothing's going on with them. So where do they get this date? Where do they pull this date? So I'll tell you. Um... When I was a kid growing up in Chicago, my mother, may she be well, and I think she's watching. Hi. I think my mother and father are watching right now. They're probably enjoying the mention right now. Um, when we were kids, she used to bring us to the maple syrup, I don't know if you call it a farm, or a, but it, it's like a, a forest and a bunch of maple trees. And uh, what they do is they take these metal spikes, which are hollow, and they nail it into the tree. And then they hang a bucket from it, and, and the sap comes dripping out. And when would they always do this? They would always do this in the wintertime. Why, why? So I remember one year I was there, and I asked the guy, like, why, are we doing, why do you always do it now, this time of year? He says, well, this is when the sap starts to run. 
sap starts to run, like, you know, late January, early February, in other words, in the middle of Shvat. This is precisely what our sages tell us, that when the, win when the winter begins, it shuts down the circulatory system of the tree. You know, the tree is carrying water from its roots up to the leaves so that they can photosynthesize. Um, but then that all shuts down when the winter kicks in. But then, in, in the middle of the winter, there's, there, before there's a thaw, before there's a spring, the, the circulatory system of the tree comes alive again and the, in, the, in, the, in the water, the sap starts to flow in the inside of the tree. What does this teach us? Comes We're told to eat from the fruits and to celebrate the fruits. Seems funny. Celebrate the fruits when the fruits are ripe. We're celebrating fruits when you look on a tree. Trees don't have fruits. Forget about having fruits. They don't have the blossoms, the flowers that, 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 that turn into the fruits. They don't even have the leaves that, that come before the, the flowers. There's nothing going on, overtly speaking, that you can see happening on a tree. What's happening? It's all inside. It's all internal. It's all quiet. And we're celebrating already. We're celebrating the fruits. This is a lesson in life. A lot of times we're, we're going to wait until something bears fruits, until we see the full payoff of a situation before we're ready to celebrate. That's, that's the wrong approach. In, in, in Judaism, we, we learn that the most powerful prayer isn't please, it's thank you. So to say, please, come on, you know, it's like when you do this to a person also, you know, forget about prayer. Let's talk about interpersonal relationships for a second. Tell something, you want, you, know, you want to know the best way to get somebody not to do you a favor? You say to them, come on, be a nice guy. Oh, what are you saying? I'm not a nice guy? Forget you. But you go over to someone, and, they, and by the way, where do they get this from? The Alter Rebbe says this in Lukot Teira. He says, Parshas Tazria about Lashon Hara, he says why Lashon Toiv works. When you speak good about somebody, it actually brings out their good. He says, you go over to somebody, and you say, come on. No, you don't go over to them and say, come on, be a nice guy, because that, that's going to turn them off. You go over to them and say, you're a nice guy. Like, yeah, yeah. Can you take me to the airport? Oh, okay, sure, yeah. So... And he says, that's the way we daven too. We tell Hashem, you are a healer of the sick. You are one who blesses the years. You are one who resurrects the dead. At any rate, uh, and, and also in marriage, I'm not saying this specifically aimed at women, but I am. That women are very good <laughs> at catching their husbands, you know, at catching them. I'm just, that's all I'm going to say. So you, could, you can catch someone doing the right thing too. And even if it's not something monumental, it's just something small. But when you catch somebody doing something desirable and you label it and you call it out and you're like, hey, thanks, that was nice. What happens? You get more of the same. So instead of waiting for the big fruits to be growing from the tree, just wait till there's that little trickle of sap, just the, the slightest movement, the slightest change. And you're already showing gratitude. It has an amazing power that when you're already thankful, when a barely discernible change is happening beneath the surface. It opens up the flow for more blessings. It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful tool in our relationship with Hashem and how we pray and, and using gratitude instead of being a, a nudnik. And, and also in interpersonal relationships, you know, label positive behaviors, call it out, thank people, and, and, and you get more of the same. Okay. Now, 
Let's talk about Shivas Haminim, the seven species. The Rebbe spoke, Chemishasu Beshvat Tafshin Nun, 1990, Sarasicha, about the seven species as they apply to each one of us. The seven species with which the land of Israel is blessed also correspond to various different aspects of the human experience. And we're going to go through them and we're going to explain how they all relate to our lives. Okay, so to begin with, we have wheat and barley. Okay, those are the two grains. Those are staples. Those aren't fruits. That's not dessert. That's, you know, the staple food. So that represents the basics. What are the basics? The wheat and the barley. What's the wheat? Human food. What's barley? Animal fodder. At least traditionally, that's, I know a lot of people like barley today, but traditionally that's how it was used. So that's the, the animal soul and the godly soul, or to the contrary, the godly soul, the animal, the godly soul is what's uniquely human. The animal soul is animalistic. So the wheat and the barley are the godly soul and the animal soul. Okay. Those are the staples. That's life itself. Now you have the fruits. The fruits are like the dessert, the, the extra, the bonus. This is what comes into our lives. So if the staples are life itself, now here's what comes into our lives. Five different species, five different modes of life or stages of life sometimes that affect each one of us uh, at different times. So let's start. What's our first of our five fruits? Our first is grapes. Yes, very good. We have, you know, like matzah, matzazu, marazeh at the uh, at the uh, at the seder. So we have, yeah, these grapes. What are grapes? Our sages tell us that nichnas yain yotzesoid, that when wine goes in, the secrets come out. Now. On a simple level, we all know what that means. A person gets a little bit intoxicated and they uh, become uh, more uh, liberal with what, with what comes out. But uh, there's a deeper meaning to that. It has to do with the fact that the gematria of yain and soid are the same. Yain is yud and yud and nun, so that's 10 and 10 and 50, that's 70. Soid is Samach and Vav and Dalit, so that's 60 and 6 and 4, again 70. What does that mean? That the Soid is already there in the Yayin. In fact, it's already there in the grape. A secret is just a secret from the person who hears it, not from the person who knows it already. When you reveal a secret, it's already something that's known to you. The only difference is it's now coming out. So the grape doesn't have anything added to it, doesn't have to have anything added to it in order to become wine. The potential to become wine is there in the grape, latent all along. And then what happens? What does the wine do? So it says it, it gladdens the heart. It's mesameach. It, it gladdens the heart of man. What that means is that joy, too, operates similarly. Joy loosens us up. Joy brings out latent potential. Sort of like a person who drinks and they act a certain way. They say, oh, that wasn't me. No, actually, that was really you. 
right? When, when a person drinks, that brings out whatever was hidden. So if they you know, become angry, the, the anger was there. If they become all lovey, then the, then, then the loviness was there. Okay, same thing with simcha. Simcha is not an emotion unto itself. It's an emotion enhancer or intensifier. So when a person is besimcha, everything becomes magnified, which is why when you want to accomplish something and you need extra talent, more talent than you normally have access to, if you're besimcha, all of a sudden you become more talented. It's not that you've got new talent. You had the talent all along. But whatever you have latent, hidden within you, when you're besimcha, it comes out more. So the grapes represent the hidden potential, the potential that was always there, that was locked in, and it comes out when you are full of joy. Revealing hidden potential, that is the first of our five fruits. Be joyful and tap into your hidden self. Okay. Now, after we have grapes, what do we have? We have... You ever see this? Yeah? See what it is? It's a fig. Does it look like a fig? It is a fig. What's a fig? We know the first mention of fig in the Torah is actually not to mention uh, of it as a fruit, but as a leaf, fig leaf that Adam and Chava made fig leaves for themselves when they realized that they were naked. Now from this you can do some Sherlock Holmes investigation and figure something out. Rashi tells us why did they use a fig leaf to cover their nakedness? Because the same fruit that made them aware of their nakedness, they went and they used that same tree, its leaves, to cover their nakedness. So from this we can figure out that the Eitzadas, the tree of knowledge was a fig tree. So figs represent das, knowledge. Now what's knowledge? Das, knowledge, doesn't mean like you know a lot of stuff. Like, oh, you can be an editor for Wikipedia now. That's not what I mean, or you can win a trivial pursuit. That's not what das means. Das means, well, you know, we have it with Adam and Chava. Adam, Yod, Eschava. Adam, knew Eve. Didn't mean that he could pick her out of a lineup which would have been really easy anyways at that time. Excuse me, sir, do you, do you identify who your wife is? You mean that woman, the only one in the world? Yeah, that's her, okay. That's not what das means. Das means intense personal connection. Odom yodes chava. To the extent that, when, that whenever there is this intense personal connection, there, there is a reproductive act. Children are born from it. What does that mean? Similar to what we were talking about before, about a scholar who's a real scholar has to be emotionally congruent with his teachings. In chapter 3 of Tanya, it says you could have a lot of chokhmah and a lot of bina. A lot of insight and a lot of uh, ability, to, ability to explain. But if you don't have das, the chokhmah and the bina will never have children. Children are emotions. You're children of intellect, they're emotions. Das is focus. So unless you take the idea seriously and focus 
and connect to it and make it yours and take ownership, make it relevant, make it personal, it'll just remain intellectual. You'll never have an emotional birth from that idea. That's what Das is. Das means connecting deeply. So in life, what is Das? Mindfulness. Being totally present, being completely connected to whatever it is that you're connected to at this time, without any fragmentation, without any uh, division. There was uh, a story that Rebbe told that in Lubavitch, the Rebbe Rashab was saying a mimer. And before the mimer, there was something called a nigun hachana, preparatory song. The preparatory song had the purpose of priming the room uh, to be ready to receive the revelation of new, of new Torah teachings in the, in the Mimer, in the Hasidic discourse. So they were singing the Nigenachona, the preparatory tune, and the students, the Tmimim from the yeshiva, they were very eager to hear a new Mimer, a new Hasidic discourse. So they were rushing the Nigun because they wanted to finish that and get to the, to the lesson. So the Rebbe Rashab stopped it and he said, the whole purpose of chassidus is to make somebody a pnimi. Pnimi means an inner person, but really what it means is someone who is congruent through and through. Pnimi means having integrity, in the true sense of the word integrity, of being integrated. Being integrated means your outsides and your insides are aligned. So it's not possible that I'm I'm physically present, but emotionally I'm checked out. Can't, can't be. So being a pnimi means wherever you are, you're totally there. So the Rebbe Rashab said, the whole purpose of chassidus is to make somebody a pnimi, is to make it that wherever you are, you're totally there. And now you're rushing the song to get to the teachings. But we're not at the teachings, we're at the song. If you're a pnimi, then when you're singing the song, there's nothing in the world but the song. Even though the song is called a preparatory song, which implies that it's in order to get to something else. No, for a pnimi, there's no such thing. Wherever you are, that's the whole world right now. That's it. Infinity and eternity in every moment. You're not thinking about five minutes from now while it's now. That's what it means to be a fig. To be a fig means to be present and totally mindful in every moment, to be totally there, to, 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 to totally show up for every moment of your life. Okay, now, if I'm going to tell you about the next guy, you know what it is? Pomegranate, excellent. If I'm going to tell you about the next guy, about the pomegranate, you're going to say, hold on a second, you just said the exact opposite with the fig. Yes, that's exactly the purpose. In, in Yiddishkeit, we always find paradox. Why? Because anytime you have infinity, the only way to really grasp infinity through a finite mind is to, to, to grasp opposites, to have two things that seemingly contradict each other. You know, which is why you know, people always make the joke about, oh, can't those rabbis ever, ever agree? Everything in, in Torah is a machlaikis. Yeah, there's a reason for that. I mean, when it comes to halacha, you've got to pick one way or the other, and that's how halacha functions, to tell us which one is the psak din. But elu ve'elu divarelikim chayim, they're both equally true, they're both equally valid perspectives, and in order to have infinite wisdom, you have to do that. You, have, you can't be locked into one perspective. So, just like there's the fig, you have the pomegranate. The pomegranate is the exact diametric opposite of the fig. What does the fig mean in simple, plain English? How would you say it? Took me 10 minutes. Say it in 10 seconds. What's the fig? What? 
be mindful. Okay. You know what the pomegranate means? Don't worry about that. Don't worry about it. No, no, I want to get, I really want to do this right. Don't worry about doing it right. Just do it. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly, right? They say. Just, just get it done. No, but I really, I want to, you know, the, 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 the guy who told, uh, they say it with the al Rebbe, told the al Rebbe that he wants to stop giving tzedakah for a while because his kavana isn't so pure. He says, I'm not so, I'm not so pure with my, my, my intention when I give tzedakah, so I'm going to take a break for a while. The al Rebbe told him, don't worry, the poor man who eats from the money you donate, his, his intentions are pure. Don't worry about it. Okay. A pomegranate is an interesting fruit because, you see, not only has these different uh, areas in it where the fruit is, but each fruit is in its own little uh, capsule. It's all encapsulated. Each fruit is in its own little membrane. It's not like uh, you know, an apple that once you get past the skin, it's all apple through and through. Each piece of fruit... Is, is separate. So what does that show you? That shows you that each mitzvah is separate. It didn't become you. It didn't become integrated with you. In fact, they didn't even become integrated with each other. Each one remains it's a separate thing that stands alone. Which is precisely why, why the, the Gemara says that Posha Yisrael, the wanton sinners among the Jews, are Malaya mitzvahs karima and are full of mitzvahs like arima. Why like arima? Simply because there's a lot of fruit within the, the arima? No, the point is not the, the, the kamas of it, it's the echos, not the quantity, the quality. The way that fruit is present within a pomegranate, that each one is encapsulated and separate from all the others. What does that mean? It means a person who says, I'm not congruent with this, my mind is elsewhere. You know what? I don't even like this. You know, I, I, I don't even like coming to shul. I don't even like, you know, I, I'd rather be at the, the ball game. Perfect. Don't worry about it. Let each good thing you do be a total betrayal of your true self. That's fine. We're, we're, we're cool with that. Be a hypocrite in the, in the most noble sense. I, there was a YouTube video that somebody shared with me about a year ago when there was this famous Jew. I mean, he wasn't famous for being a Jew by any stretch. It happens to be, though, he was Jewish. Um, I don't know how many people heard of him or know about him or even realized he was Jewish, but there was a, a, there was a food critic food journalist, I don't think he covered very much kosher food, named Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain was Jewish. His father was French-Canadian, his mother was Jewish. Okay. And he unfortunately committed suicide. There's one episode from his show, I think it was on CNN, but he used to go around and, and go to different countries and experience the cuisine. There's one episode, he goes to Israel. And in the Israel episode, he goes to the Kaisel. And at the Kaisel, a Lubavitcher comes over to him and asks him to put on tefillin. And he does it. And there's this shot where he's standing at the castle in tefillin. And anyone who knows Anthony Bourdain is like, this is a totally incongruent picture. And he's narrating it. His voiceover is narrating it. And he's saying that it's totally incongruent. And he's like, I don't know. Like, I don't believe in any of this. I'm not religious. I have no use for religion. I have no use for any of this. He says, but these guys, they come to you with their love and their warmth, and they just pull you in. And he, and he goes, oh, boy, the treachery is complete. That blew me away. The treachery is, what is treachery? Treachery is betrayal. What he's basically saying is, this isn't me. I don't believe in any of this stuff. I, I reject all of this. And yet, I'm, I'm, I'm standing here, and I'm doing it. I'm betraying myself. Like, I'm not being true to myself. If I'm, if I'm going to be consistent with myself, I'm going to tell these guys, get out of here. This is not me. I don't do this. 
but he betrayed himself the way that a pomegranate betrays itself. It says, you know what? I'm not going to wait until, my, until I'm a fig. I'm not going to wait until it's congruent to me. I'm going to do it even when it seems totally unnatural and totally incongruent. And sometimes we've got to be like that. Okay. Now, what comes after the pomegranate? What do we have next? Olives. Okay, very good. I love having these props. This is good. I wish we could do this for every class. All right. What's the olive? Well, the olive is... Hmm? Well, yeah, well, but how does the oil get produced from the olive? It's unavoidable. What? Yeah, you got to crush it. Yeah, there's a certain amount of crushing that is good for creativity. We, 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 we don't look for it. We're not masochists. You know what the masochist said to the sadist? Hurt me. You know what the sadist said to the masochist? No. You have to think about that joke. Anyways. We're not masochists. We don't go looking for punishment. We don't go purposely getting ourselves into a crisis. In fact, in the morning blessings, we say, Hashem, don't bring me to an asoyan. Don't bring me to a test. And nevertheless, if Hashem should so choose and say, yeah, but I think I'm going to, then that's Hashem's choice. And if Hashem brings us to a test, an asoyan is to extract greater powers from us. That's why Nisayan, which means a test, is from the word Nisa, which means exalted. It lifts us up. A test lifts, lifts us up. And, and, and really that's the, the nature of all of life. Life is a test. And life is challenging. And life is hard. That's the nature of life. Is Never promised you a rose garden. Right? It's not, we're not here to take it easy. Life is hard. You know, there was two guys in Helm. They were, they were talking to each other. One said to, to the other, he says, you know, Chaim, seeing how difficult life is, sometimes I think it would be better for someone never to have been born. And his friend says, yeah, Beryl, but how many guys do you know who are that lucky? Like one in a hundred? <laughs> how many guys do you know who were never born? Right? Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> But if you were born, you know the nature of life. Life is, life is tough. Life is tough. And the olive means embracing the fact that life is tough. And that there's something healthy about always striving, never arriving. Remember the old commercials? Let's see who can remember back to the Avis commercials. Avis rent the car. They would always say, we're number two. I think Hertz was number one. Avis, they were proud, we're number two. Why, why were they proud they were number two? Because we try harder. We try harder. So that's always a good place. To, the olive says, I don't want to be number one. I don't want to become complacent. I don't want to rest on my laurels. I like being the one who has to work 10 times as hard to get half as much accomplished. That's fine. That's fine. That's a good place to be. So the olive embraces the struggle, embraces the fact that 
I'm a work in progress, and I may never be complete. Okay, now, if that's the Aleph, who do we have left? Do we have anyone left? We have the date. We have the date, okay. So the date is Chamisha Asabishvat. Get it? No, nobody. The date is February 9th. That wasn't funny either. Okay, I just, uh, I was testing if it was a language barrier. Okay, fine. Wasn't a good joke. At any rate, the, the date. Remember how we were talking about how the fig and the pomegranate are opposites? Right? The fig says, you've got to be congruent with this. You've got to have integrity. And the pomegranate says, don't worry about all that. Just show up. The olive and the date are opposites as well. The olive says, you know what's good? You know what's good? Bitterness, struggle, being crushed, working hard, never arriving at your goal. That's good. And it is good. But you know what also is good? The date says, you know what's good? <sighs> Perfection is good. <laughs> Perfection is also good. The date represents perfection because, well, on a few different levels. First of all, our sages tell us about a certain date tree that takes 70 years to, uh, to give fruits. And uh, 70 is a number of perfection. In fact, we just started to celebrate the 70th year of the Rebbe's leadership. And uh, 70, what is 70? You know, there are seven emotional facets of the personnel. Chesed, Gvura, Tveris, Netzachid, Yesed, Malchus. And within each of those is another set of those seven. Like during Sviras Oimer, we have 49 days. Seven times seven is 49. Um, but actually, there's not just the emotions as they are present within each emotion. There's all ten nefesh, all ten attributes. So it's not just the seven emotional, but the three intellectual as well. So within chesed, let's say, there's not just seven subsets of chesed, there are ten. Because it's not just chesed shebechesed and gvur shebechesed, there's chokhma shebechesed, bina shebechesed, das shebechesed, and so on and so forth. So that you have ten within the seven. When you've completed all ten subsets of all seven emotional faculties, you've reached seven, you've reached perfection. Perfection means absolute personal refinement, the tzaddik. The tzaddik. And in fact, the tzaddik is compared to a date tree. Tzaddik ketomer yifrach. Right? That the, the, uh, the purely righteous one, the truly righteous one, will flourish like a date palm. And in fact, this hints to us even more what real perfection means. Real perfection, by definition, doesn't mean merely that I've completed working on myself. That's not perfection. Because, well, who was there Wednesday night? Yud Shvat at our big event. Okay, so you remember, remember what we spoke about, that uh, the Rebbe empowered each of us to be the world leader of Jewelry, which means it's not enough to take responsibility for your own Yiddishkeit and your own family, but you've got to take responsibility for the world. So real perfection, by definition, means not just that I've reached perfection within myself. It means that I'm now an influencer. There's a story in the Gemara about two Amaroyim, two sages of Yitzchak and of Nachman, and one wanted to bless the other. And he didn't know how to bless his friend, so he said to him a, a parable about a tree. About a tree. 
He says, let me tell you, I want to bless you, but I'm not sure how to do it. So I want to tell you a story. He says, once upon a time, there was a guy who was, uh, he was taking a nap under a tree, and he, he appreciated it. And as he was leaving, he turns to the tree, and he says, Elon, Elon, tree, O oh tree, with what shall I bless you? How should I bless you? Should I bless you that you give good fruit? You, you already give good fruit. Should I bless you that you give good shade? You already give good shade. Should I bless you that a, that a, that a pleasant stream runs nearby you? A pleasant stream already runs nearby you. I, I can't bless you with anything more. You have it all, right? You have everything. So how can I bless you? I bless you that all the other trees that grow from your seed should have everything that you have. And his friend understood what he was saying to him. He was saying, you have it all. You're, 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 you're a tzaddik. You're perfect. I just bless you that, that, that your children and also your students who are like your children should, should have everything that you have. That, that's the ultimate nachas. That's the ultimate, ultimate perfection. So the ultimate perfection is to be an influencer, to make others have what you have. Or like we spoke about on Wednesday night, that ultimately what the Rebbe taught us is that the only Yiddishkeit that you really have is whatever Yiddishkeit you are actively giving away. That's perfection. And that's specifically the date. We mentioned Tzadik Ketama Yifrach, but let's continue with that verse. Tzadik Ketama Yifrach, that a Tzadik flourishes like a date palm, but then the verse continues and said, Ke'er is belovan in Yiske. He'll grow tall. Yiske means tall. He'll grow very tall like the Eres, like the cedar in Lebanon. Lebanese cedars are the tallest trees. When, when Shleim HaMelech wanted to build the Beis Amigdash, he used Lebanese cedar. These are tall trees, good wood, tall, sturdy wood. He didn't use date palm wood. He used cedar wood. The cedar is a tall tree. So which is it? Is a tzaddik like a date palm or is a tzaddik like a Lebanese cedar? It says, he says he's like both in one verse. Baal Shem Tov comes and he says, it's talking about two types of tzaddikim. One is like a Lebanese cedar, and one is like a date palm. What's the difference? There's something that we call a tzaddik in pelts. Pelts means a, a fur coat. A tzaddik who looks around and says, the world's a cold place. So he puts on a fur coat, so he's not cold anymore. Who does that help? Then the tzaddik says, the world's a cold place, so he lights a fire. And he warms up everybody who comes around the fire. So there's somebody who says, you know what, my tzidkus, my perfection is self-perfection, and I'm going to put all my effort into being the best that I can be. That's like a Lebanese cedar. He'll grow, he'll grow very, very tall. Very impressive. But you know what a Lebanese cedar doesn't give? You ever heard of cedar fruits? You know why you never heard of them? They don't exist. Cedar doesn't give fruits. Date palm gives luscious fruits. But it doesn't grow as tall. You know why it doesn't grow as tall and its wood isn't as strong and you wouldn't use it for construction? Because some of the energy that it would have put into its own growth, it puts into providing fruits. Says the Baal two types of tzaddikim. Two types of tzaddikim. Which tzaddik should we be like? So I'll tell you. And the Gemara in Gitin talks about the fact that there was an uprising that started once when a Roman chariot broke its axle and they cut down a cedar tree that belonged to a Jewish family and they used it to fix the axle. Why did the Jewish people revolt? Because they used to have a minig in Eretz Yisrael that when a child was born they would plant a cedar tree. And on the day of his chuppah they would cut the cedar tree down and use that as, as the chuppah. So the Romans came, they cut down this tree which 
some family was waiting to use for, the, for their kids' chuppah, and then the Jews freaked out and they, they revolted. What's, what's, what's pshat? There is a time in your life when it's appropriate to be a cedar. It's called childhood. It's called adolescence. That's me time. No one's expecting you to be completely altruistic. If you're going to get life skills, if you're going to work on yourself, if you're going to perfect yourself, that's the time to do it. Please, become a mentor while you're still single. Right? <laughs> do your future spouse a favor, right? Okay? So that's the time to focus on yourself and, 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 and to be selfish. If you're a baby, you can be completely selfish. Babies get to scream at 3 in the morning when they're hungry. And nobody has any complaints. You know, wh wh there will come a time you're not allowed to do that. Not even allowed to make noise while you're going downstairs to the kitchen at 3 in the morning. You have to tiptoe, right? Hopefully. So, there's a phase of life that's the cedar phase of life, where you're really, you're focused on just being the tallest, the biggest, the greatest that you can be. Personal development. That's called childhood, it's called adolescence, it's called being a single person. Then comes a day where there's the end of the cedar phase. That really is marked by marriage. That's why they would cut down that cedar and turn it into the chuppah. They'd say, you're done with the cedar phase. You're done with personal development. Now you're, you're here for someone else. You have a life partner, so you're certainly not here just for yourself. Then you have children, <laughs> then you're definitely not for yourself. Then you realize that you're a part of a community, you're part of a, a nation, you're a part of a world. And that's the ultimate perfection. The ultimate uh, perfection is not personal perfection. It's being an influencer, being responsible for others, being a giver, being selfless, giving fruits so that others can be nourished. And, and hopefully that those who are nourished from your fruits will then go on to be the same type of tree as you. Anyway, these are lots of lessons we can learn from the trees. The main thing is, like I said, that it shouldn't be intellectual information. We should, we should internalize it. We should take it to heart and apply it in our lives. Okay. Good yom tov to everyone again. Thank you.